Welcome to the Continent of Resistance, a podcast with interviews and discussions on labor movements across Asia. Hey, my name is Kevin Lin. Hi, my name is Queen Saktira Hong, and I go by Kim. We will be your co-host. I'm really excited to host this podcast with you. But I think before we start, it's important for our listeners to know a little bit more about who we are, right? And yep. our background. So let me start. I am the founder and managing director of Just Economy and Labor Institute at Jelly. Jelly is a social justice and labor rights organization based in Bangkok. So I have led the labor research at Jelly since 2017. Kevin, what about you? Right. Uh, I'm the uh, managing editor of uh, Asian Labor Review. And before that, for many years, I was working on labor issues in China. Mm-hmm. And more recently, uh, I began to focus more also on labor in uh, the rest of East Asia and also Southeast Asia. For our listeners uh, who may wonder why we are making or producing another podcast now, maybe we should talk about it. <laughs> yeah, I think. You know, since I started editing uh, Asian Labor Review last year, I've been thinking about ways uh, in which we can present people's voices. Uh, right. One of the things that I've done, you know, for AR uh, is doing all those interviews, either in person or online with mm-hmm. activists and researchers. And, you know, talking to them and, you know, listening to their voices has been a really powerful experience, especially when it comes to, you know, grassroots organizers, listening to their sort of life experience. It's been, it's been really uh, a, a powerful way mm-hmm. to learn about labor uh, movement in Asia. So, you know, I, I have really wanted to bring their voices to our readers as well, uh, you know, in, in this case, in the form of a podcast. So this idea has been at the back of my head for for a while, actually, and I think uh, on this trip to Thailand, uh, we made up uh, pretty late uh, and had a very late uh, dinner, where I, you know, brought up this idea of uh, doing this podcast. And I'm really glad that you were interested in the idea and agreed to co-host the podcast. Right. Uh, I didn't know what I was signing up into at the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. I, I I have to credit you with. But, you know, with coming up this name, uh, which I really like, you know, I want you to tell the story how we, you know, came up uh, with this name. Well, I remember we actually spent a lot of time brainstorming about the name, right? I think we came up with (laughs) lots of names. um, And at one point we we were kind of stuck. And I remember you said something. I I don't remember now what you said, but it reminded me... um, of one um, edited volume, which I contributed one chapter, and uh, that that book actually, uh, you know, published. It was published by the same people who started the Asian Labor Review. Yeah, it's called Resistance from the Continent of Labor. Yeah, <laughs> actually, what's funny is actually I I misremember the name. Uh, I thought it was uh, the Continent of Resistance, right? And I told you, yeah, I well, I I remember this. There's this this book. Maybe we can use this book, and then yeah, here we are. You know, <laughs> we got it, a really cool name by, by accident. Yeah, no, it's a it's a great name. So so, what do you want to convey with this name? Well, I think the idea um, the idea that we want to convey, I and mean, based on our discussion, and and as you said, you know, 
it it was brought up by you the the whole idea of producing this. We want a podcast that highlights um, labor struggles, right? Labor struggles in Asia, which is a big continent. But I think what we want to do is to to highlight the, the perspectives of organizers, as you said, right. you know, right. practitioners on the ground. Of course, we both are, you know, still right now recognizing the challenges of uh, covering such uh, such the such a rich continent, right? With especially without any common language, so that's that's why we're using English in this podcast. Yeah, no, absolutely, and I think for those reasons, I think this is both really exciting, but also really daunting. Uh, so this is the first episode. You know, our plan is to produce one episode per month, uh, and each, in each episode. You will hear uh, uh, interview with our guests, uh, but you know, in addition, you know, we'll, Ken and I will also talk about uh, you know what's happening with our work, what we are seeing and observing in the region, uh, which you can hear after the guest interview. Uh, so maybe let let's start introducing our guest Chia Osmodo. So Chia is a, a labor journalist and union organizer in Japan. Uh, she's not only an amazing uh, writer and, and journalist, uh, she's also a great uh, or- organizer who led this really, really inspiring struggle uh, to organize uh, women journalists, uh, media workers to combat sexual harassment at work, which is very common in the industry. Uh, I think I first met Chia back in 2012 at this Labor Notes conference in Chicago. Uh, I remember, you know, at the time she was leading this huge Japanese delegation, uh, which attests to her organizing skill. Uh, and she's also very much involved in building international solidarity and exchanges, etc. So, so when we started uh, Asian Labor Review last year, we invited her to contribute to the publication uh, to help us learn about labor organizing in Japan. And, you know, we also really want to bring her uh, to the org first guys for the podcast. Right. Actually, in, in this episode, which we already recorded with Shia, right, we covered a lot of ground. Actually, in this episode, we highlight her roles in organizing media workers uh, under the Women in Media Network. And, you know, mm. based on the piece that Kevin just mentioned, in the ALR, you know, we talked about a milestone case of a reporter who gained legal recognition after uh, almost two decades. And that um, that is a result of the grassroots organizing, uh, the most recent uh, organizing um, under what uh, she had called the, the Me Too movement in Japan. Right, right. As you said, you know, as Kevin, she is an organizer who has firsthand experience uh, with the uh, movement building in media mm. sector. So that's why I think we really want to talk to her um, and highlight her story and experience in the first episode, because you and I, Kevin, uh, we both believe in uh, movement building and we want mm. to highlight how grassroots organizers and activists, you know, turn um, winning moments into a movement. And I right. think the reason why we give special place to uh to this episode and we yeah this is the pilot so let's let's hear the interview so share um you um wrote about the Naga- nagasaki case in the asian labor reviews piece 
Mm-hmm. And I wonder why you chose to highlight this case in your piece, and what is the significance of that case in um, in Japan? Can you talk about that? Sure. Uh, this case is uh, it started about 15 years ago when a female reporter uh, wanted to interview mm-hmm. a high-ranking official in Nagasaki City because that was her. Uh, she was in charge of the city government and especially in charge of atomic bomb survivors. Mm-hmm. And she ended up, she was raped at the time. And she did report the case to the city office, to her mm-hmm. company, uh, and she sought justice. And the city government actually started to investigate. And in a few months' time, there was a report that the man who was suspected of raping her committed mm-hmm. suicide. Mm-hmm. And so at the time, this case was not pursued. And mm-hmm. for years, of course, she suffered mental illness. And mm-hmm. she, um, even if she wanted to to pursue uh, mm-hmm. social justice, she couldn't do that. And so, you know, it, the, people didn't talk about it. And she was trying to recover. Um, and, you know, it was kind of forgotten for a long time. However, in 2018, April, mm-hmm. Uh, there was a, also uh, a case where mm-hmm. t- TV reporter mm-hmm. actually came out and said she was, you know, she was in, during the interview with a high-ranking official of the finance ministry. Mm-hmm. She, he made certain sexual comments during the interview, and so she reported this with a you know audio recording, and this was on the internet and everybody was talking about it. This was uh, such a mm-hmm. outrageous moment and our outrageous um, actions, behaviors of the high-ranking official. Mm-hmm. And this is when a lot of the female reporters, a lot of women in media industry uh, stood up because they realized that this was not, you know, a single isolated case. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the mm-hmm. women actually in the industry shared this kind of experience, you know. And so there was, a, and we came all together and decided to establish media, uh, women in media network, Japan. Mm-hmm. And at the time there were about 80 women. And I think the, you know, the, the sentiment was that we could not let this woman stand alone mm-hmm. and we have to support you know we had to build solidarity with her and stand with her and mm-hmm. so we you know we approached the media and this was widely reported we had a press conference and all this and this was because this was this gathered a lot of attention and it was uh reported widely mm-hmm. it reached the woman who suffered the rape mm-hmm. some 13 years ago Mm-hmm. And this movement really encouraged her to again pursue justice, mm-hmm. and she decided to file a lawsuit. And that's when, uh, well, because she was a member of union in mm-hmm. the Federation of Newspaper Workers Unions, we decided that we're going to build a solidarity and in support of her, her causes, basically. And I assume that this. Could not have happened with um, the growing consciousness, not only in Japan but worldwide, right? 
um, mm-hmm. that already originated in the U.S. Uh, under the the Me Too movements. Can you talk a little bit of your involvement in this? Can you uh, can you share with us what what you actually did in terms of organizing with uh, with your hmm. colleagues? Uh, yeah, with the with the women in media network. Yeah, it was kind of interesting because I didn't really think about myself. I was only thinking of others, you know, who might have suffered the sexual harassment or or any other assault, sexual assaults in on the job. But a couple of the people who I know, they mm-hmm. came to me and they said, "Can you possibly help us organize the women in the mm-hmm. industry?" And that's mainly because I've been involved in the union organizing mm-hmm. and also other civil society organizing. And mm-hmm. so I said, yeah, it's very important. And so I didn't even think about my past or my experiences, but I thought it was important. And so I, you know, I, I guess I try to help organize and mm-hmm. we did that. And I think it was also, I was kind of sought out because I'm a freelance journalist and i i've been active and i'm you know i'm out there with my name and with my face out <laughs> but most of the women who needed this most uh they couldn't actually identify themselves they were afraid that they might meet retaliation within the companies mm-hmm. and i think uh, yeah your piece actually talked a little bit about uh how the as as journalists the women in media network used um, your own power, you know, as I I would say, cultural workers to shape the narrative and to um, to kind of influence um, the public debate about that, right? I actually um, I went back to read uh, the book by Tarana Burke, um, mm-hmm. who actually is uh, the founder of the Me Too movement and. Yeah. What I what I found in her book in her memoir uh, about it's really interesting actually in the in the prologue she actually talked about when she found out about the uh, hashtag Me Too on Twitter mm-hmm. she was really shocked because she uh, she saw uh, a disconnect you know between um, the online campaign and mm-hmm. and the um, and the way in which the, the hashtag Me Too was uh, used and went viral. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, you know, she has been working on the ground to support uh, young girls, uh, especially within her communities. And when the Me Too, the hashtag Me Too, uh, took off on Twitter, she was she was actually afraid that you know the the the, the movement would be hijacked. Or um, she, I think one mm. thing that she said that 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 struck me uh, the most is that she she think that you know the term Me Too is really. Uh, resonate uh, for a lot of women because it shows mm-hmm. that you you are not alone, right? As you mm-hmm. as you alluded to, that you know you, this is not isolated, and we all share the same experience. But for her, she said, "What what matters is they need to build communities of support and uh, create safe space mm-hmm. uh, for the women." So mm-hmm. when she saw the 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 Twitter. Uh, all the tweeters and and the online campaign, and she was afraid that all the women who were uh, courageous to come out, you know, only mm-hmm. get only one side of of this. And so I wonder if you could talk about 
the work of the um, women in media network to support uh, the women, the journalists, you know, to create safe space. What does it look like for for this organizing work on on the daily basis? Um, it's very tricky because the the women who came together to build women women in media network. Mm -hmm. Most, I think there were only out of 80, now we have more than 100, but out of 80 at the time, there was probably just a handful of us who could name ourselves, who could identify ourselves right. and come out, you know? Mm -hmm. um, as I said, because there was that, there was a fear of mm -hmm. re retaliation, mm -hmm. not within the companies themselves, mm -hmm. but also from this in the society here. I mean, I, th I don't think it's just Japan, but the, elsewhere too, when women come out when they start voicing their rights and when they stand up in solidarity and try to start a movement, there's always a backlash. I don't know how long it's going to take, but slowly, you know, mm -hmm. if this kind of momentum is built and if, if this kind of sentiment is uh, widespread, women shouldn't be afraid to actually come out and just say, this is what we pursue then we will be able to do that. Right, right. And, and, you know, what's really interesting and striking about the work you do, Chia, was that, you know, you explicitly uh, look at this problem from the perspective of a workplace, power imbalances, power relationships in the mm -hmm. workplace, and, and also, uh, you know, taking very union perspective. So you're organizing mm -hmm. uh, them not only as women, but as women workers. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk a bit more about this from a union organizing perspective, uh, because, you know, as we've seen uh, elsewhere in the U.S. And, and elsewhere, there are similar Me Too movements, mm -hmm. but they're not, only, uh, they're not always framed as a, as a workplace issue or as a union mm -hmm. issue. Uh, can you talk about when you put this into a union framework, mm -hmm. how much does it help to build up the, the confidence and the strength of women workers and, and also what are the biggest barriers to, to organizing uh, women workers around sexual harassment? Very interesting question. It's kind of interesting how uh, there was, it just kind of coincided with this Me Too movement or women's mm. establishment and what newspaper workers unions were trying to do at the time. It just so happened that before this high-ranking official sexual harassment case came out, uh, there was a, a movement within the Federation of Newspaper Workers Unions. It's called Shimbun Roren. But um, to actually encourage women members to actually speak up and create their own space and presence. Unfortunately, newspaper, <laughs> newspaper now our federation, Shimbunoden, has a lot of newspaper, uh, newspapers and also wire services uh, across Japan. And we organize about 20,000 20, workers, right, in the industry. But unfortunately, because it's based on lifetime employment workers, mm -hmm. it's majority male members. And I would have to say, the industry actually in the industry about 20% is women right workforce wise mm -hmm. and so unions when it comes down to unions it probably be a lot fewer i have to say i'm one of the few women members who would always come and attend the conferences and every time i go there i am always discouraged because i'm one of the very few would be mm -hmm. like i would be one of the five of you know out of 
a hundred or something members mm -hmm. attending. And so I always wanted to see, I didn't know that there are a lot more women members in the Federation. So in, in 2008, mm -hmm. it just so happened that there was other women in the Federation who wanted to get together and find each other and try to, you know, try to create their own, so try to show their presence in the Federation. Mm -hmm. And then this case, this sexual harassment case happened. And mm -hmm. so we kind of, I kind of finally found them in the Federation, in the union. Mm -hmm. And we connected and we thought, well, you know, sexual harassment cases are work-related issues. I think we had mm -hmm. to put that in that context mm -hmm. for people to understand, for the society to accept this as a work-related issues rather than personal issues. Because it's always like, you know, it's always uh, shoved away because it's like between the two individuals, you know, right. problems between the two individuals or something, but it's not, it's a work-related issue. It's a work safety issue, right? Right, right. And so we actually uh, framed it that way. And it was very well received by the unions mm -hmm. and especially, you know, people, especially of the unions, the Federation. You're listening to the Continent of Resistance. Right, right, right. Now, you, you know, you told us something before, which I find really fascinating. You know, you said that you told us that, you know, women workers are really the future of the labor movement in Japan. Like, what do you mean by that? And, and what where do you see not only in the media sector, but mm -hmm. also in other sectors? Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by that and, and where you see as uh, really interesting areas of, of labor organizing uh, that mm. are emerging with, with women workers? a lot of women who are also part-timers or casual work mm -hmm. they have they make up majority of the workforce in these sectors mm -hmm. and so they were hurt big time and they mm -hmm. couldn't barely survive with all the business closures and so some of us who recognize that we came together and there was more than a hundred women who just said, we need to offer some kind of uh, support to these struggling women. And of course it wasn't just the labor unionists, but also lawyers and mm. civil society organizers. We came together and we offered free consultation that's where we provided some relief goods and also food, like raw veggies, uh, mm -hmm. you know, life mm -hmm. support, that type, mm -hmm. type of thing. And it's, it's we've been offering this consultation session several times since March 2021. But what was interesting is that this is probably the one of the very few, one of the rare occasions where women are alone, working mm -hmm. together alone, because usually. If you look at labor unions, it's majority, right. I'm sorry to say, but it's majority <laughs> men. It's it's men's world, right? Right. The media mm -hmm. is the same one, right. same way. Right. But so uh, even if there is a lot, a lot of presence or a lot of women members, mm -hmm. if you look at the top executive levels, they're mm -hmm. mostly men. And so what women have found themselves doing oftentimes is 
they're receiving some kind of directions from the top down uh -huh. and then they're listening to you know these orders so this consultation committee mm -hmm. is flat like we don't have any anyone who has you know mm. who's on the top level like so we it's don't not have hierarchical levels yeah it's not hierarchical mm -hmm. and we don't have any power relationship either and so mm. everybody is this is grassroots like generally grassroots right everyone has her own idea that they can bring to the table and we discuss and we say mm. what's you know we decide what's possible and what's not possible so that's why it's it's workable it's mm -hmm. not like you're being told what to do you know right this is what i often talk about in japan 70 percent of casual workers are women but then majority of unions still mm. are based on lifetime employment mm -hmm. and the largest confederation in japan has you know majority male membership mm -hmm. because that's where that's who the lifetime so there's employees a mismatch. <laughs> exactly and this is what the future of union comes in right mm -hmm. future of union movement lies in the hands of casual workers that are women majority and so mm -hmm. if you start organizing women or if women start standing up or if there are some rooms of casual workforce, if there is a lot more proactive organizing of casual workers, that would be majority women. And we actually mm. hold the key to mm. the future of labor movement. Mm. And that's actually what I believe, what we did for um, the victim, for the women, the consultation session that we offered for women. I believe that that was like the picture we want to draw mm. for the future. I mean, not necessarily, I, you know, how there's a lot more struggling women, but mm -hmm. how we built, how women actually built that movement and built that service. That's the future of, of mm -hmm. labor organizing. I mean, we have this very horizontal relationship. You know, there's no hierarchy. Mm -hmm. We all decide, we all pitch in, we all give out our ideas and we try mm -hmm. to realize the ideas that we decide is best for everybody. Excellent. Well, I actually want to want to ask you about the change that you see at the workplace or industrial level, mm -hmm. you know, just to to shift uh, the issue a little bit. I mean, you, you talked about the you talked about the society as a whole, but I I was curious when you talked about um, collective bargaining that you uh, observed, and and also you know coming back to going back to the issue of the the union that you mentioned mm -hmm. uh, among the media workers. I wonder if uh, if you see any change in the way that the unions negotiating or the the demands uh, of the unions in collective power that reflects women's demands in the past years or recent uh, recent years. So is there any positive change, for example, that the, the, the unions become a representation of women in terms of talking about sexual harassment, mm. in terms of uh, incorporating uh, sexual harassment in the CBA, for example? Is, is this happening now or... 
yeah, what, what does it take to, <laughs> to go? If not, then what does it take to go from here to, to there? Mm, very interesting question. I would have to say no. <laughs> because see, one of the major problem is that labor unions are still male-oriented right. and male-dominant. And you know why? It's because labor unions, you know, every time they have meetings, for instance, it's always in the evening. And then they go out right. for drinks afterwards. Right. And that's like the dinner mm. time and the kids, mm. you know, bedtime, whatever. And in Japan, even if the you know modernization has progressed, mm. women are still the main caretakers at mm -hmm. home. Mm -hmm. And so even mm -hmm. if they work full time, they're the ones mm -hmm. who have to take care of the house chores, okay, take care of the ch kill, uh, children. And so they can't really, you know, attend the meetings and go mm -hmm. out afterwards mm -hmm. for drinks with other union members. Unions have to change their mm -hmm. traditional styles. Mm -hmm. And like I said, you know, the, the, um, the, the organizations that we, mm -hmm. the organization that we started Mm -hmm. the, the free consultation for women's consultation for women. Mm -hmm. This We actually have our meetings on a weekend morning right. Right. on Zoom or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, on the internet. Mm -hmm. And we have participation of from 20 to 30 women every mm -hmm. time we have a meeting. But if you hold it in the evening dinner time hours, right. Of right. course, you see very few women because they can't mm, possibly can come. come. Right. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, of course, before that, the you know house chores will have to. It's too genders genderized. Mm. So if male workers would willingly participate in the house chores, of course, women mm. will be able to attend the evening hour meetings. But that's not possible right now, right? So. Yeah, no, this is super important that you pointed this out because I, I think those are, you know, small but important steps in, in really changing that that union culture, right? Mm -hmm. um, I, I want to maybe ask a little bit about one of the, the other initiatives that you have been involved in, which is an unfiltered uh, cooperative. Can you talk about what that is and, and also how are you trying to build something alternative that doesn't replicate or reproduce some of the similar dynamics, gender or political or power dynamics that, that you're seeing as problematics in some of the unions. Can you talk about your, your efforts there? Yeah, um, Unfiltered is a cooperative, journalists or media cooperative of journalists members and also reader members. And we pitch in and you know we try to protect this freedom of expression and freedom of media. But why it's why we needed to do to build this is because we're some of our journalist friends or I guess members of this uh, cooperative. We realized how it's all if you have incorporated media organizations, it's often you have to listen to the capitalists where the money is or where the mm. money is coming from right and it's never mm. reader oriented of course because readership can't possibly pay for uh media organization right. it's always the advertisers and mm. so we don't we didn't want to be directed by where the money is good for mm. and so we were trying to build this but i didn't know how else to do it and i had some friends who were into cooperatives 
and they gave us this great idea of building a media mm-hmm. led by journalists. Mm-hmm. And that's where the power should be. And of course, mm-hmm. the readers are the ones who are often reported and they need a medium to, mm-hmm. to echo their voices, right? So that's why we decided to build it like this. And what's more important is, especially when I think it's from my own experiences of trying to raise the labor issues within the media Mm -hmm. and how media ignored our voices Mm. all along. And that was like hard lesson to learn, but it is impossible. Like it conflicts, right? The interest conflicts. Mm -hmm. If there is a lot of media uh, workers issues, the media themselves would not take up on it. And so it has to be away from the capital or Mm -hmm. it has to be away from, yeah, the uh, conflict of interest. This way we could even, you know, take up on whatever that's going on in the media industries. I want to end maybe by asking, you know, your thoughts or maybe what you want to share with, with other uh, women workers uh, elsewhere in Asia or around the world who are, you know, experiencing similar kind of sexual harassment or other kind mm-hmm. of problems in the workplace. But, you know, like you uh, sort of pointed out, you know, people may be fearful or reluctant. Mm-hmm. What what would the lesson uh, or advice that you want to share with them? Like what would be the sort of steps that they, they should take or uh, ideas that they uh, may think about uh, so, so so that they can maybe take the step to also start organizing and challenging some of the, the gender dynamics and power uh, imbalances in the workplace? That's a very good question, I think. I mean, I myself was really glad that my colleagues or mm-hmm. my comrades found me and came to me and asked me if I wanted to, you know, join or if I wanted mm-hmm. to be a part of it. I think that's what it is. You have to find each other, you know, and it's very easy to be hesitant. Of course, it's mm-hmm. very difficult to raise your voice because you're going to be retaliated against and you're going to be stomped on if you're one. But this is what the labor movement is about, right? I mean, mm-hmm. especially here in Japan, we have the collective bargaining rights all uh, guaranteed in the constitution. And so if you find your comrades, if you find the members of the same interest, and if you wanted to raise your voice in unison, in groups, we have the power, we, we can insist on, on our presence and they can't crush you. And that's what it is, the, the number. Number is what's important. You need to invite people of the same background, people like you need to find your own kinds. It's not just race or gender. It's, you know, even the intersectionality, you have to go beyond that sort of micro category that you belong. I think if, yeah. as soon as you, you find one more member, one more comrade from the same background, your voice gets louder. The more you have, the louder your voice gets. And I think that's really what, um, what we did. And I think the weaker position you are, the more you have to, the more members you have to have in your mm-hmm. groups that you represent. Thanks, Gia. That, that's a great note to, to, to end on. Uh, it's really been a pleasure speaking to you. Yeah, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to uh, talk uh, with us. We really no, appreciate it. No, it fun. Thank you thank for inviting you. me.
So what's been happening with the Asian Labor Review? Yeah, so yeah, we've been publishing a lot this year. So one of the things we're really proud of is this new special series on Grab mm-hmm. in Southeast Asia. Uh, it's a collaboration with another uh, guest editor. Um, and really the goal is to look at just one, this one company, Grab, which is very dominant in Southeast Asia uh, and see how it operates across different countries in the region and also see how uh, workers in different countries organize. Do we see any similarities, differences? What can we learn from each other? Well, let, let me ask you this. So what's so special about Grab that we have to focus on this company that, that we need um, a special series? Yeah, I think I we looked at this uh, from sort of organizing perspective, right? So we could have chosen something else or we could just do any platform. But by choosing one platform, one company, uh, and see how it behaves and operates in different regions, I think it gives us a sense of, okay, so if workers in different countries uh, uh, organize differently, maybe, you know, we're at least the one constant, right? We had the, the company being more or less operating in the same way or behaving the same way, but maybe there are other local conditions and factors that we need to think about when you think about organizing. Because I think the big biggest question, one of the biggest questions anyway, for, for looking at platform labor is to what extent it's uh, the, the kind of formal organization, formal labor organizing, varies across different regions and, and why the, the, uh, there are these variations. Right. Yeah. And uh, I think the question of organizing, the question of how to organize and what forms organizations are really, really key and really uh, an important question right now, right? So it's, I'm also really interested in this question myself and still uh, working on this. Yeah. But com- coming back to Grab, I think Grab is significant too in terms of how uh dominant it is mm-hmm. right like grab uh i think when when uber withdrew from the south asia market grab had some kind of deal with uber mm-hmm. so that's why grab has this upper hand of um being the first uh the first one to kind of lay the groundwork and uh, occupy really strategic uh, place in, mm. in the economy, right? So yeah, if you can pick another highlight um, to talk about from the ALR. Yeah, so it's really something that is very, um, uh, in a way close to my heart. So mm. so the uh, Chiyunan, uh leader, uh, Chim Sita from, the, from Cambodia. Mm. So she was the leader of the Naga World mm. uh, Casino Hotel Resort uh, Union. Uh, leader, she's been in that position for uh, ten years, and and she's been just being a remarkable person. Like she, her strengths and bravery, she's been uh, laid off mm. a couple of times. She's been arrested, beaten up, uh, but she continued to organize uh, her fellow workers in the casino, uh, and you know around issues of pay, around issues of sexual harassment, because there's a lot of uh, harassment, uh, you know in the casino mm-hmm. from customers, et cetera. And very often management turned out of the way. And so she has been leading this effort to push back against uh, layoffs mm-hmm. uh, back in 2021. So the struggle has been going on for a long time, for two years now. Mm-hmm. And she's been arrested and uh, a, a previous time. And then this time in November, 2022, last year, uh, she was on her way uh, uh, coming back from a 
International Labor ITUC conference in Australia, and she was detained at the airport in Cambodia because the authorities said that she violated bio uh, condition that she didn't know of, that she couldn't travel. So, and she's been in detention since November. So it's been two or three months already. You know, we we actually did an interview with her in person mm-hmm. uh, uh, last year in the summer of twenty twenty two. So uh, we'll bring you a, a very short uh, clip uh, from that interview. And they can put me and some other leader in, in the prisons. And uh, if the fight, we can we can win the fight to, mm-hmm. to protect thousands of and millions of worker mm-hmm. uh, rights in Cambodia. It's, it was mm-hmm. it's worth the fight. Mm-hmm. And then, but is it fell? But if it fell, then to me it's still okay because I just cannot live and stay silent uh, with the just with the injustice with mm. the with uh, the the greedy employers with the the heartless employer to allow for, uh, the the work uh, being treated so bad from the customer and then they pay them just just property wage so mm. I cannot. I cannot just work eight hours a day and go back mm. home and then sleep and then just wake up another day to work mm. another eight hour again and then mm. do nothing for the society. So mm. it's it nothing. It's it's the same thing for me staying outside the prisons or staying my home in that kind of situations. Is it so? It is same. Mm. Mm. So that's 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 my opinion. You have been listening to the Continent of Resistance podcast. You can download our latest episode on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also visit our website at laborreview.org. See you until next time.